0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Something happening Yeah, yeah. What it is clear.
2: There's a man with a gun there. You know, I had these two old beefy Dallas cops come over to me at a table one time grinning. They say like, we hear you don't think Oswald owned that rifle or pistol. And I said, I didn't say he didn't own any at all. I said, but I don't think he owned those ones they planted on him. And they said, what about that gun he brought into the theater with him? I said, I think you boys brought that gun in to kill him with They looked at each other, they grinned, they said, well, maybe we did. I said, that would be police procedure, wouldn't it?
0: Today on Guns and Butter, John Judge continues his explication of events, people, covert operations, and historical context surrounding the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, November 22, 1963. The murder and subsequent political assassinations of the 1960s changed current history and the course of events in ways that shape the world we live in today. Today, the second half of the interview we began last week with John Judge. Judge begins by explaining why Lee Harvey Oswald is key to unraveling the mystery of the forces that lay behind the assassination.
2: Oswald was the key to me. There are many people who are still focused on which direction shots came from at Dealey Plaza. There are people that have moved beyond that to at least naming some of the characters or possible groups in the case. At the mechanical level, there are a few people who have looked further, like Peter Dale Scott, into the broader political milieu in which this happened or that have the analysis of a clash within the class itself, like Oglesby and Yankee Cowboy War. Peter Dale Scott talks about something he calls deep politics, which goes further than parapolitics, which is the term he used to use, that surround and interlink organized crime and uh, intelligence agencies and uh, the drug trade. And uh, he has a book called The Deep Politics and the Murder of JFK. And then Deep Politics Two was a follow-up self-published book that he did uh, since University of California. Berkeley will no longer allow him to print books on political topics using their press. Only his poetry can be printed through them. I'm just saying there's different levels of analysis. I got off of Dealey Plaza right away, and I looked at Oswald the Patsy, and following Oswald uh, unravels the entire story, in my
0: view. It sounds to me like your research has led you to believe that a military coup took place in this country on November 22, 1963. Does it astonish you that a military coup could have taken place here and nobody even knows it?
2: No, because I I think that we do hear the opposite of what's done in foreign countries. In foreign countries, the coups are open, but the transition of power is hidden. And here it's the opposite. The transition of power is open, but the actual mechanics of the coups, the assassinations are hidden. So we get to see the results openly, but we're told that they're just democratic transitions whereas in the other countries I think they do the coups and do them more openly in order to establish their power, but then there's many people that move. You know, the real power behind it is not seen. So I think uh, it had to be in their interest to conceal and divert um, where this came from. But at the same time, I believe, as Vincent Salander and some of the early, early critics said, that the Oswald conspiracy, you know, the Oswald Lone Nut, idea was meant to fall apart, was meant to be transparent so that a broader conspiracy would be seen. And certainly by the time Ruby shot Oswald, most of the American public began to question what was going on and felt that there were more things, you know, than was being revealed. And it's clear that the Warren Commission had as its stated purpose to dispel such rumors, to quash any idea of conspiracy, to establish an official position of how many bullets there were. I mean, the pressure that the commission put on the witnesses to go along with their version of reality was so great that one of the eye and ear witnesses to the Kennedy assassination testified, I heard one more shot than was actually fired. They established a three-shot sequence because that was all that Oswald could have gotten off from his gun in the time between the visible effect of the first shot and the headshot. And with those three bullets, one was a miss, that hit tag and cut his cheek further down the street one bullet was the headshot bullet at least and so that left them one bullet to account for all of the wounds in Kennedy in his back and in his throat that were not directly the head wounds and all the wounds through Connolly's chest uh, smashing his rib smashing his wrist ending up in his leg all that had to be done by this one what the critics call magic bullet that had to have traveled in many different directions as it passed through these bodies had no direct straight line of fire, and actually the timing of which, according to Connolly himself, belies the idea that it was a single bullet, because he felt himself being hit much later than the first point at which Kennedy is visibly already hit. And uh, you can see the effects of the bullet hitting him. It's too long for a bullet to have hung in the air between the two people. It's too short a period of time, though, for a second shot from Oswald to have been gotten off. And then. When the acoustics were done by the House Select Committee panel, when there was still pressure to open the case in the 1970s, they ended their report saying that the acoustics showed that there was a second gunman and that there was a probable conspiracy in both John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King's assassination. They handed it then to the Justice Department and recommended that they look into it. And of course, the FBI and the Justice Department did nothing. So that ended the 70s with basically a dead end. It wasn't worth going back to Congress, who had already politicized it. When they put Blakey in to head it up, he tried to blame it all on the mob and nothing else, uh, forced people working there to sign lifelong secrecy agreements, and then was instrumental in locking up all the records for 50 years after they finished the investigation. Uh, And they compromised uh, the, the research community that tried to cooperate with them. But they still ended up saying that there was a conspiracy. And I think that that's part of the transparent conspiracy theme, is that the system does want us to know, that people at the highest levels did kill Kennedy and did kill King and killed Robert Kennedy. They want us to understand that, but they don't want us to understand it in terms of being able to actually point the finger or understand the mechanism of how it worked or who done it. The message to us is just, yeah, we can kill the president, and we can sure as hell kill you. So get out of our way and sit down. Shut up.
0: John, how is it that you feel that Oswald is the key to solving who killed President Kennedy?
2: I think so, because I believed him when he said he was a patsy, and all the physical evidence shows me that he was, that he did not own the rifle and pistol that are said to have killed Tippett or been with him in the Texas theater or been the murder weapon in the book depository, that he was not on the sixth floor of the book depository at the time of the shooting, that he did not fire a weapon that day. There was no graphite on his cheek to show that, or on his hands, and that he basically was framed into the position and set up, and he came to realize that, and he began to say it out loud. And at that point, instead of a dead red, they had a talking head. I believe the plan was to kill him at the Texas Theater. When he foiled that by sticking his hand down in the breech of the gun the cops had brought to shoot him with, he then was alive, and when they began to question him, his answers were too telling. And too damaging to the system. And so the Dallas police lied and said that in the 48 hours of questioning of Oswald, they had never taken a single note and never turned on a tape recorder. They even went so far as to say we didn't have tape recorders back in those days. And so the crime of the century, which if it ever had come to court would have relied on the veracity of those early reports and compared them to later statements or guilty pleas, all of that was undermined by the police saying that they weren't taking any notes, even though they were questioning him over a period of two days. But he came out to the press. He said, I'm a patsy, which is different than saying I'm innocent. It meant that he was set up. And I realized that even if you could identify the various gunmen in Dealey Plaza, they would not take you back to the perpetrators of the crime because they would be specifically cutouts or false leads or false sponsorship that would lead you to the wrong conclusion and it would be set up that way. Only Oswald, the Patsy, I felt, was the one that, if you really found out who he was, could lead you back into who set this up and who engineered this, this coup and this cover-up. And Oswald had a very interesting background. He grew up in New Orleans. He went into the Marines at an early age. He was very smart. He learned Russian language to some extent in the Marines and had fairly good grades on his tests. He went to the Defense Language Institute School at Monterey, Uh, where they teach sort of Berlitz courses in foreign languages, he was assigned to units that were looking at the U-2 out of Atsugi, Japan, and the spy flights, and he knew about it. He called it the boxcar. They laughed because it would give these altitudes and speeds that they thought were impossible by what they were told because technology is hidden from most of us. Uh, When they develop new technology, they don't want anybody to know it exists or what its capabilities are. So the boxcar would report in, and they'd see it on the radar blip, and they'd report a speed and an altitude that they thought were fantastic. But they were guarding the hangars where the U-2 was based and tracking it everywhere that Oswald went, even when he went to El Toro, the, the U-2 was there. His assignments in the Marines were around the movement of the U-2. He had crypto clearance in the Marines, which is a very high clearance. He was with the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, and he got a very suspicious discharge from the military based on the facts that a box had fallen on his mother's nose nine months before and called, caused nasopharyngitis, which is swelling of the nose. And eight months earlier this had happened, and yet it became the basis of a hardship discharge from the Marines. Well, I'll tell you, don't apply to the Marines for a hardship discharge on that basis. You'll end up with a swelling of the nose. It was nonsense, but it was obvious. That, and also there's an indication that his passport that got him down into to Mexico was actually issued to him prior to his discharge of the Marines, but it had the number on it that would eventually become his discharge paper's number. So a lot of things were set up for him, including, I believe, his defection to the Soviet Union. And he went into the Soviet Union at a time when eight other people from the, over a two or three month period, eight other people from the Office of Naval Intelligence had defections into the Soviet Union, most of them not mentioned anywhere or Aggrandized, but we found in the new files that all of these defections were followed very, very closely, that the CIA had opened files on Oswald starting in 1959, that he was known to them and tracked by them what he was doing in the Soviet Union. He went over there to the embassy. He talked to Richard Snyder, who himself was Office of Naval Intelligence. He did interviews with Priscilla Johnson and Aileen Mosby. Both of them worked for an intelligence-linked outfit called the Northern American Newspaper Alliance, or NANA. The Russian desk of that was headed up by Sidney Goldberg, the husband of someone you may have heard of, Lucianne Goldberg, who was also a disinformation expert, and she figures into PR for Mark Furman in the O.J. Simpson trial, and also she was the main push to break the Monica scandal against Clinton, along with Linda Tripp, who was GS-13, a high-paid woman at the Pentagon, well, GS-16, actually, in Army Intelligence, and had been the personal secretary for Richard Secord, and the Delta Force, when they, when they did the botched attempt to raid Iran and later congregate uh, operations around Secord and the TCI corporation that was set up to do secret operations by Oliver North and his crew, she was Secord's personal secretary. So the two of them befriended Monica, and it was Lucienne who suggested that the tapes be made public, and uh, Linda Tripp provided them, and they scandalized Clinton. This is a classic disinformation team and a propaganda operation going on. But these people figure all the way back into these early interviews, naming Oswald as a defector. And even though he said he was defecting and said that he was going to sell military secrets to the Soviets, including what he knew about the U-2, they did not revoke his passport. He didn't renounce his citizenship. And he stayed there in the Soviet Union. He was distrusted by the Soviets who thought he was a spy He was sent out of Moscow to to Minsk. He was given a job at a radio factory by Mr. Abram Ziegler, who had supposedly been a Jewish man that had run from the Nazis in the Argentine and defected to the Soviet Union years before. Ziegler introduced Oswald to Marina Petroskova, who became his wife there in the Soviet Union. But when I say became his wife, they married the fourth time they met. The family did not attend the wedding. She was from a white Russian anti-communist family. Her uncle was high up in the NKVD, which was the Soviet version of military police, and uh, had high security clearances, and the family wanted to get her out of the country. And Oswald was the ticket out. The people that Oswald knew in the KGB and NKVD circles when he defected were people that had, had a history of being related to the German and Nazi penetration of the KGB and the old networks under Reinhard Galen, who was a general under Hitler, who had been the head of his army's east in his attempts to penetrate the Soviet Union. When after the war, the U.S., which didn't have a spy capability yet, knew nothing except what the British were telling him about the Soviet Union, and Galen offered to come over here and bring his spies with him and all the data he had on the Soviet Union to start the Cold War. And so he brought them in. Bobby Inman admitted to me that they were the basis of the whole Cold War uh, situation, and they, they brought these 300 Nazi spies and Galen and all of his data over here. But Galen was also running whole armies inside Russia at the time of World War II and had cross-infiltrated the KGB. And so some of Galen's agents in the KGB were the ones that were around Oswald. Mr. Ziegler, even though he's supposed to have been a defector and not somebody knowledgeable, when the Oswalds left the Soviet Union and were given back their passport and actually given money by the State Department to return, the United States. And all nine of these men that went over on the ONI defection program also came back during the same months and restored their citizenship and everything else. It was all a penetration job to see how the Soviets would react to defectors and to, to watch how it would light up their systems or how far in somebody could get. Marina, in her testimony, for instance, to the Warren Commission about how she met Oswald, mistakenly gives a description of one of the other defectors a guy named Robert Webster who lived at a different address than Oswald which she describes and who came over as part of looking at trade shows about technology and then supposedly defected so she gives Robert Webster's story in her warren commission testimony when she's talking about meeting Oswald which means to me that she knew more than she was you know than people understand about this defection program and was probably part of through her uncle or her family the reception teams for this inside the Soviet Union. But when they left to come back to the United States, Mr. Ziegler passed them a note to bring back with them, and the note was addressed to Alan Dulles, then director of the CIA. Now, how many Russians knew the head of the CIA? How many Americans in 1963 could have addressed a personal letter to the head of the KGB or known who he was? And yet Ziegler had Dulles' name, and he wrote a letter to Dulles through the Oswalds Ask and how would he think that they could deliver it if they weren't spies, asking that his daughters be taken out of the Soviet Union and taken back to the Argentine. Well, if he was genuinely a Jew running for the fascists, why would he want to re-endanger the daughters by sending them home after all those years? But he's the one that introduces Marina and Lee. They come back. They're met at the docks in New York by Spaz Rakin, who poses as a member of the Traveler's Aid Society, but who actually is part of the Solidarist and anti-communist networks of the White Russians in the United States and Secretary Treasurer of the Friends of the Anti-Bolshevik Nations, as it was called, and everyone that's around the Oswalds from that point on are interrelated to this Solidarist networks, which were revanchists who hated the fact that the Bolsheviks came to power. They were White Russians who were kicked out of the Soviet Union because of it or left because they lost their fortunes. Under the Czar, they were the equivalent of the anti-Castro Cubans. Only they were the anti-Bolshevik Russians. And then these nascent fascist movements that sprang up with the help of the Opus Dei and the top reactionaries in the Catholic Church in France and Spain and Italy and elsewhere at the beginning and then after World War or during World War II. But the rise of Franco, the rise of Mussolini, those elements also joined into this international Solidarist movement from 1918 on in order to topple the Soviet Union. And Herbert Hoover, who was over helping supposedly humanitarian efforts to feed the Russians, was actually funneling the charity money into Vasilov and the white Russian army in its attempt to do a counter-coup on the Bolsheviks. And Hoover then collected war chests from the top industrialists around the world, and American industrialists also who were anti-Soviet or proto fascist And that became the war chest. That rearmed Nazi Germany, wasn't Nazi yet, but rearmed Germany from 1918 to 1932, and then laid the foundation for the rise of the Nazi state and Adolf Hitler, whose goal, in their view, and the reason that the corporations were financing them, and Mussolini defines fascism as corporatism plus reaction, was to go back in and destroy the Bolsheviks and the Soviet gains and destroy the Soviet Union. And that was the huge drive that did actually get all the way to Moscow before. It was finally turned by the winter weather and millions and millions of Soviet deaths and the final stand at Stalingrad, which the Nazis had to finally retreat. Between that time and the post-war period from 43 to 45, the Nazis began to regroup, to go underground, to cut deals with Alan Dulles and others, to bring scientists and spies, munitions and aerospace experts like Wernher von Braun and his Nazis to the United States at the end of the war and to create a climate in which the Soviets became the new enemy for both the United States and these Nazis, and they collaborated at the end of the war. Their Nazi pasts were hidden. Even Nazi historians were brought to the United States by General MacArthur to write the official American history of World War II. One of them, who was one of 26 official historians for Hitler and the Reich, Otto Winneker, was sent on a temporary duty order to the Warren Commission, to actually write the Warren Commission report.
0: You're kidding.
2: No. And then when I went into the archives in the 60s and saw what was publicly available, there's line-by-line critique of his report by the investigative staffs, which are also hand-picked and which were framing Oswald, but Winokur went so far in the report that they couldn't even back up his statements with the lies that they had been trying to create. So there's line-by-line critique. Where does he get this? What's the basis for this? From the staff itself about the report, but they issued it anyway. Then Hale Boggs complained that maybe they should issue some of the evidence because people would think it was a little bit fishy, and Alan Dulles said, well, go ahead and and release some of it. Nobody will read it anyway. But a few of us read it.
0: You're listening to author and researcher John Judge. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Around Oswald were others in that milieu, and especially when he came to Dallas, he was befriended by George de George and his wife, Jean de Morenshield came from families that had lost fortunes to revolutionary changes in uh, communist-led countries. George de Morenshield's father had been considered the Marshal of Mobility in Minsk in Belarus, or white Russia. And uh, I also found it interesting in the obituary of Abraham Zapruder that he was from a white Russian family as well, because these were the anti-communist elements that came to the United States. They centered around the Anna Tolstoy Foundation, a CIA front and many of them were paid by that foundation to do anti-communist work. And there was a whole white Russian community in Dallas. It met quite often at a Eastern Orthodox church that had been financed by through CIA funds by the Catherwood Fund, which, among other things, funded Cuban aid relief for the survivors of the Bay of Pigs and other covert operations out of Philadelphia. But they built the church in which the DeMorn Shields and the Oswalds met, where... Ruth Payne and Marina Oswald and the DeMorne Shields uh, met each other. And then Ruth Payne, the Payne's housed Marina Oswald for a time while Lee lived in an apartment out in Oak Cliff. And Ruth said she took Marina in because she wanted to learn the Russian language from her. She'd only met her once and then took her into her house. And it was Ruth Payne through a neighbor, Roy Truly, that helped to get Oswald a job at the book depository which placed him ultimately as the Patsy. Now, Ruth Payne comes from a rich family. Her family is Forbes, which is part of the current Forbes magazine fortune. And then Payne was the other family, Michael Payne, her husband. And they were ostensibly Quakers, although I heard an interview with her on Canadian Broadcasting where she said, I was a right-winger back then. And she was at Antioch College, and she taught at Quaker schools in the subsequent years, but in the new files that we got released, There's a sheet that says that she was a witting asset for the Central Intelligence Agency. And many of us believe that she and her husband were both spies. Her husband owned a Minox camera, which is a special spy camera used back in the 60s, not very well known, could carry more film, was easy to conceal, very small. And there was a Minox camera found at the house that was accredited to Oswald because it had pictures of the Soviet Union. Michael Payne was working, even though a Quaker, supposedly, he was working at Bell Helicopter Systems, which developed the helicopters that made tremendous profits in Vietnam. And his superior, direct superior at Bell Helicopter at Fort Worth for Michael Payne, was a Nazi general, Walter Dornberger. Now, Dornberger had been the mentor for Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist. And Dornberger had worked directly at Dora and at Pinamunda with the Jewish slave labor at those camps which were hung for any kind of you know, indiscretion and were worked to death in order to develop the V-1 to V-5 rockets that carried payloads and were used as anti-personnel weapons in the rocket attacks on London and other countries in Europe. And uh, it was where these rockets were being built by the slave labor that de Mornschild and von Braun and other associates in the aerospace technology ran these camps and oversaw the murders and the hangings and, you know, the deaths. So even though a deal was cut with von Braun and the rocket scientists to come here, and they moved up with their information to Switzerland right at the end of the conflict and were put under an arranged capture by General uh, Thurston, his aide-de-camp, who actually physically arrested von Braun and these other Nazis in the arranged deal that got them to the United States was none other than Clay Shaw, the guy that Garrison tried to prosecute so many years later in New Orleans. And Clay Shaw also, we now know from the released records, was part of several CIA operations and was also a winning asset to the CIA in his international dealings with the Permandex, Permanent Industrial Exhibits, and the International Trade Mart, or World Trade Center, where Oswald had leafleted outside of in New Orleans at that facility, and also Centro Commerciale Mondiale in Italy, which was the beginning of the World Trade Center, and these permanent exhibits and the original Italian-based board that Clay Shaw had been part of in the 1950s, along with these proto-fascist families in Italy. Also under that is the World Trade Center buildings in New York that were part of the 911 scenario. All this interrelates to this international corporate entity that got in some trouble financially, and, uh, you know, there were corporate claims brought against them, and that Garrison was on that trail and trying to expose that. It was originally exposed in some alternative left papers in, in Italy, but many of the early researchers into the Kennedy case talk about Permandex because of Garrison's work on it, and there's one book called Nomenclature of an Assassination Cabal by William Torbett, which is a pen name, somebody who worked directly under Lloyd Benson in Texas, and also went through Garrison's files and wrote this book outlining the different elements that were part of the planning of the Kennedy assassination. And he specifically names Permandex and some of its international connections in Canada and the U.S. and around the world. So many people believe that that was a corporate entity that was, you know, that was involved in terms of its membership in some of the, at least the mechanical planning in the Kennedy assassination. That company constructed the Watergate Hotel. Uh, Central Commercial Mundial. And the Watergate figures E. Howard Hunt, Bernard Barker, Frank Sturgis, and Rodriguez and, and the other Cuban, they were known to me because I had seen their names in the testimony of the Warren Commission volumes that I read in the late 60s. And they were known to me also as people who figured into the covert operations around the Bay of Pigs and the training of the Cubans and the aborted invasion attempt. And then they show up again in relation to Watergate and the five people that break into Watergate. When I saw their names that first night, I had called my mother in Washington. I was living in Ohio at the time and told her to clip anything she saw on this arrest or these people because they were very, very important. And I was amazed that they had been arrested. And, of course, her clipping of the Watergate stuff bore it out. But George DeMorn came from this very rich family His father was in charge of the Nobel family oil fields, which was like being in charge of Rockefeller oil, basically. At that time, these huge deposits inside uh, the Soviet Union of oil. And he had the ability to move you up into the circles around the Tsar and into the royal court. So that's why they called him the Marshal of Mobility of Minsk, because he could move people up and get them what they wanted. And he was managing tremendous wealth for the Tsarists and the monarchists. When the revolution happened, of course, he lost that position. His other son, von Mornschild, was imprisoned for a period by the Bolsheviks. And then as soon as they could get loose, once the son was released, the whole family ran to Germany and began to work with the beginnings of the Nazi era and the Brown Network, the spies for the fascists that preceded Hitler's rise, but that made connections around the world and did spying in other countries. And uh, some of them came here to the United States De Morenshield had a cousin here that he came to visit in New York, Baron von Meierling, who was a Nazi propagandist and a filmmaker for the Brown Network and then made pro fascist and pro Hitler films to influence American opinion in the mid 1930s. And De Mornschild was also caught spying in several places, including France, where he was dumped out for spying. He was caught outside of Corpus Christi, Texas, taking pictures of the base there during World War II and got out of the spy charges by producing a personal letter recommending him from Nelson Rockefeller. And then he was working with General MacArthur's nephew um, and MacArthur's top G2 intelligence spy, Charles Willoughby, actually changed his name to that. His real name is Kurt Wiedenbach, and he was trained in the Kriegs Academy in Germany in the pre-Nazi period, but had fascist leanings and helped MacArthur bring these Nazis historians here at the end of the war. And MacArthur had a chummy relation with many of the fascists. And MacArthur's nephew and de Morncio were kicked out of Mexico City for spying down there as well. So he had a long history of this. They had lost the oil fortune. He and another guy from Pantepec Oil, which was the William F. Buckley Oil oil company that owned much of the oil in um, Katanga province in the Congo and were dumped out, tried to form Cuban-Venezuelan oil in the late 1950s, early 60s, uh, and lost that company to the rise later of uh, of Castro into power. So he lost many fortunes to communist revolutions and investments. He was known as an oil geologist. He was used as a consulting expert by Kerr McGee of Ohio, the company where Karen Silkwood later worked, and was personal friends with Kerr. He also knew the Bush family. He had poppy bushes telephone number in his personal address book at the time of the assassination. He was very well healed and connected into the entire white Russian and spy community there in Dallas. And he introduced the Oswalds, then he kind of babysat them and moved them around and introduced them to Max Clark from General Dynamics, to the Tolstoy Foundation Russians, Anna Mueller, who they had actually known in the Soviet Union, was there, and the Ray, Ray and Bowie, these two guys that Later were hired by the Warren Commission to do all the translation from Russian to English of Marina's testimony, so that if Marina slipped up and said something wrong, they could uh, they could correct it in their English translation of her testimony. And they were both people that had taken CIA funding, Paul Rigorodsky and George Bowie. But they they were in this White Russian circle that the Oswalds knew and that moved the Oswalds, and then the Paines working directly under General Walter Dornberger. Dornberger had been brought up on charges for the what he did at Pinamunda. And when von Braun got to Shoals, Alabama, and the proving grounds there, he said, I'm not doing any of your rocket work unless you free Walter, my friend, and get him out of there. And so John J. McCloy, sitting as, at that time, the German high commissioner, and later a member of the Warren Commission himself, McCloy took the charges away from von Dornberger and allowed him to come to the United States. First he went to the proving grounds, and then he went out and began his long career with Bell Helicopter, which included later training pilots for the Shah of Iran when the U.S. staged the coup with Mossadegh, And he helped to train helicopter pilots in the Savak and the secret police and the torture police there. He also got passing mention in 1960, where are they now? In Time magazine, I found a, an article relating to him in 1960. It said he was living in Buffalo at the time, And what were these great rocket scientists doing now that they were here? And it said that Dornberger had worked on a rocket originally that would deliver a payload, a bomb payload, into space and then be able to come down at an almost vertical orbit, leaving Germany and coming back down out of orbit into New York. And so it was an early attempt to develop basically an, an outer space weapon Uh, that you would launch into space and then make it come down in a way that it wouldn't be easily detected or you'd detect it too late to stop it, and it would be going at tremendous speeds, and it would come down with this bomb payload and hit New York City. In addition to that, it said that in 1960, Dornberger envisioned a new plan where they would load satellites with nuclear weapons and put them into space and ring the Earth with them and be able to defend the United States with these nuclear weapons. Well, that's Star Wars and the stuff that the SDI, Space Defense Initiative, and the stuff that Reagan attempted to put in and got defeated and now Bush wants to bring back includes exactly that kind of a defense. And these ideas for all this came out of all these Nazi rocket scientists and Nazi spies that we brought into this country and protected from their war charges for all those years. Alan Dulles, fired by John Kennedy, sat on the Warren Commission, John J. McCloy, who had been a with Sullivan and Cromwell, a firm that maintained its legal offices in Germany long after the pogroms and Kristallnacht and the attacks on the Jews began. The junior partners finally had to force him out. Prescott Bush, part of a bank of international settlements, and Brown Brothers Harriman inherited control management of a bank that his uncle, whose last name was Walker, owned, and ran, which financed uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler and which maintained relations until the U.S. forced the bank to liquidate in the late 1940s under the An- Trading with the Enemies Act. And when it liquidated, the portion that went to Prescott Bush became the foundation of the current Bush family fortune. Alan Dulles had also, and William Casey under him, and Donovan, these, these people who formed the OSS and the CIA that followed it had been investment bankers who wanted to know from the intelligence where the next shoe would fall on their investments, and then eventually made sure that the shoe fell in a way that made them profit. And McCloy had been at the heart of major corporations. He later, near the end of his life, resisted paying reparations to the Japanese victims of concentration camps here in the United States and internment camps during World War II. He had been one of the initiators and authors of those camps. He had thought them up. And he had worked closely with General Greaves, who had been part of the Manhattan Project, and also Earl Warren in California on the inception of those internment camps. Earl Warren and McCloy worked together on that and later both sat on the Warren Commission. And Johnson gave military orders to Warren to go on the commission because he didn't want to smear his reputation. I'm sure he knew it would be a cover-up. John Sherman Cooper, who sat on the commission, was an ambassador to Germany in the period when Hitler rose to power. And the only real independents were Hale Boggs, the Southern Democrat, and Richard Russell, a friend of of LBJ's. Gerald Ford basically was the FBI's man on the commission and spilled everything to him, just as Dulles was the CIA's man on the commission. And all these people were appointed to basically do and run a cover-up of the reality of the politics behind Oswald, the Kennedy assassination, the coup d'etat, and the rise of literally these Nazis and their fascism and their anti-communism into the predominant paradigm for the period until the fall of the Soviet Union, and now into the counterterrorism milieu of fascism and the rise of uh, the corporate state again that we're facing today.
0: Would you say that we're facing the same same scenario today as we did then, maybe even some of the same sets of individuals?
2: Some of the same individuals and the situation is much worse. I mean, that this is the final consolidation of power. What you had was a shift, I believe, to a permanent war economy and continuation of the Cold War, longer than it should have gone on with the death of Kennedy. But in that period, from the 60s till now, was the tremendous concentration of wealth in both the Southern Rim and the Eastern Establishment, so that now some 80% of the wealth basically resides under the control of about less than 2% of the population. The corporations have gone from colonialism to neocolonialism to neoliberalism through the auspices of the World Bank and the IMF, loans and economic manipulations to structural adjustment around the world to grab all the available labor, cheap labor and resources, and pull them into that pyramid of wealth that exists here in this country as the last and largest superpower. And we've not abandoned any of the genocidal ideology that guided us from the inception of the United States. The Nazis' defense at Nuremberg uh, misguided, certainly, but historically accurate, was that they had learned how to put people in concentration camps, how to do mass sterilization, how to do genocide from us, from studying what they knew of our treatment of Native Americans, from the mass sterilization laws that we passed in 28 states in the late 1920s to deal with what we called retarded and feeble-minded, And the beginnings of the Holocaust were the killing of such people in the mental institutions, 78% of the population of the mental institutions, starting in 1936 with killing centers using crematoria and gas chambers built by and conceived by the psychiatric pseudoscientists in Germany who also interrelated with the World Eugenics Association and believed that, as they still do today, that there are genetic bases for human behavior and so-called psychiatric diagnosis. And it was in the Nazi countries that electroshock and lobotomies and brain mutilation were developed. And there's those scientists brought it over here at the end of World War II, and those psychiatrists there in Nazi Germany were brought to Bergen-Belsen and to Auschwitz and to the large concentration camps that marked the broader Holocaust as the experts to set up the technology of death and how you did the choosing of the people who would die, who would live, all of that that they had developed in the six smaller killing centers, killing 300,000 people, became the technological basis for the killing of the 13 million.
0: Were Americans directly involved in this?
2: Actually, some of them were. There's uh, one I was just talking to a friend about, Edwin Katz and Ellen Bogen, who moved from Harvard to Buchenwald as a psychiatrist. There were Americans and Germans in both the World Psychiatric Association and the World Eugenics Association who shared this view of sociobiology and racial hygiene and cleaning out the gene pool as the way to solve the problem of uh, dysfunctional human behavior or what the Nazis then came to call useless eaters.
0: You're listening to author and researcher John Judge. This is Guns and Butter.
2: But it was a con- similar concentration of wealth in the end of the Moimar Republic, a series of political murders, From 1928 to 1932, 400 political murders were outlined in a book about them by a professor that was kicked out of Heidelberg for saying that war memorials in Germany had the same worth as a turnip. And he wrote four years of war lies about the propaganda that led into the war uh, that Germany waged and also four years of war murders. And they killed the musicians and the progressives and the people that could speak out. They killed the labor leaders and the people that had the potential to create hope or mobilize people in a series of unsolved political murders that the Weimar Republic shrugged their shoulders at and that were carried out by the Freikorps, which was a reactionary veterans movement that sprung out of World War I from the thesis that they had not lost militarily, that they had lost politically because they'd been stabbed in the back by the Bolsheviks at home. And this was the line that German military intelligence paid, gave walking around money to and money to print papers, for the party to Adolf Hitler at the end of his military career because they saw him as a good spokesman for this position. And they helped promote him and even gave him the arms for the initial push that he attempted uh, in Germany. All came out of German military intelligence. They helped Hitler form the party, print the paper, and spread the propaganda. And the Freikorps that he drew his initial units in the SA and the SS from were these reactionary veterans that were involved in covert murders. And I believe that There's been a string of murders since the assassination of John F. Kennedy that have served the same political purpose here in the United States, and the U.S. domestic death squads, which involve military veterans, as well as people from the refugee populations, the anti-communists and others, like Alpha 66 and Omega 7, are part of domestic kill teams that have served the same purpose here. You also had a tremendous leap forward in technology at the end of that period in Weimar Republic, Germany, concentration of wealth into the hands of Ruhr Valley Steel, the Tyson family that financed Hitler, and other major corporate entities that put Hitler into power, along with this war chest that I mentioned before that the monarchists and the industrialists around the world had collected, and many American proto-fascists, like Henry Ford, as one example, and others, who actually maintained factories all during the war in Germany, producing stuff that was used by Germany for the war effort, got the profits off of it, and then when their factories were bombed, uh, came and got reparations out of U.S. tax dollars for the damage done when they were bombed by U.S. planes. McCloy also was responsible for refusing appeals by the world Jewish community to bomb the railroad tracks going into Auschwitz and the camps, or to bomb the camps themselves and to end the killing centers, and he said they didn't, they weren't capable of doing that, they didn't have the planes to use, even though they had photographic overpasses of planes showing the camps. McCloy, and they've blown up this letter in which he he refuses to do that as Secretary of War during World War II. It's blown up at the Holocaust Museum, his denial. And, you know, he he didn't want to end the fascism whatsoever. And he was recalcitrant that way till the end of his life. These are the preconditions, I believe, in a devaluation of the currency in Germany and uh, the fact that people had to work many jobs in order to to feed themselves that there was a very little work, very little social support of any kind. All of that set the, condition, the preconditions for the final stage within monopoly capital accumulation, which is fascism. And I believe that we live under a very technologized fascism now, a fascism of propaganda that the Nazis could only have dreamed about, and a concentration of wealth and control globally that they hungered for but never achieved all of that is in place and is turned against us right at the time of September 11th. That's the beginning of the formation of a world axis of these corporate entities and the European Union, the United States, and the great global powers that have amassed their forces to go out and grab, through warfare and through political geopositioning, all the key resources for the next 500 years under the hands of a very small, rich elite. And the pressure in these conditions is a pressure toward genocide. So I think we're in the same position as the German people in September of 1939. I think that Poland has already been invaded. I think the World War has been declared, and the situations are already destabilizing to create that. And I think that the Holocaust is looming. And I think that it's our responsibility now, just as much as it was the responsibility of the German people then, to take a stand against the fascism and to create real democracy and then global democracy and justice around the world. Not the phony market democracy that is exported by this administration, but real actual democracy, fair trade, international principles of law and decency, and that the United States has become part of the world community in all the ways that it should, instead of protecting its own war criminals like Henry Kissinger, who now is being given up as the person to investigate nine eleven, when he himself needs the investigation.
0: That was a pretty outrageous appointment. Were you surprised at how blatant that was?
2: I am sometimes, although, as I say, I think some things they want us to get the message. Just like the election of 2001, I think they wanted us to know that we don't elect the president. They do. And that they're not going to allow it to come down to a vote. I think many things that have already gone on for a long time in secret are now being put out into the public and pushed into our face so pointing Kissinger is a slap in the face in the face of people who know what's really going on in the world. And it's a way for them, I think, also to signal us that they have no intention of doing any sort of a real investigation. But one of the early Kennedy researchers, Ben Salandria, noted that uh, he wanted a congressional or blue panel investigation not because he thought it would get at the truth, but because it would give us a foundation, as the Warren Commission records did, to deconstruct the lie and to show what was wrong with the official investigation based on its own folly. But part of the problem there is Kissinger and these others are also going to want to limit the investigation so that it doesn't cover the really key points on which they're vulnerable. And in the same way that the Warren Commission made its conclusions before it began to collect its evidence, they've also framed the question as to that they're not supposed to look at an intelligence failure. They're supposed to look at how did the Terrorists actually carry out the event, and what could we do in the future to prevent it? But of course, if you really went into how they carried out the event, you would have to include the cooperation in training, arming, and financing them that they got through U.S. CIA circles right up to the time of the event, the interrelation with Pakistani intelligence head who was fired or forced to resign afterwards who was over here meeting with the CIA and the contragaters? the interlink of Contragate people with 9-11 people, including the fact that Mohammed Atta, the supposed mastermind, stayed in Sarasota, Florida, with uh, one of the Iran-Contra pilots, and that we have many of the Iran-Contra criminals back in top positions in the government, including John Poindexter, who's now doing all the data mining and research on people's computers and phones. We have Otto Reich, and people that led the Contragate War for the State Department, and actually led a war in Belarusia. One of the uh, the underlings that the State Department is back in now. He was the head of the Contragate War when he was connected with Nicaragua, and ran that covert war under the embassy cover. And then, just recently, he was stationed in Belarusia and ran a similarly large covert death operation to prevent the rise of a communist candidate in Belarusia. Then there are other Contragators that have been appointed and positioned by Bush back into power, the people that were around his father and are running many of these operations. So, And then you would have to also explain the military stand-down and lack of response to the hijackings under standard operating procedures. So if you really want to know how the terrorists did what they did that day, you can't answer that question without also addressing the fact that they could not have done what they did that day without support and help and even stand down here in the U.S. during the event.
0: I'm just wondering, in terms of the assassination of President Kennedy, our whole modern history, I mean, that sounds like it's very much a, a crucial part of the story that continues. It's, it's the same history. I think so. And I can see from what you have said why it was so necessary to kill him or anybody like him, yes. and that we're heading right back into this... Corporate fascism, et cetera, that the world was facing in the 1930s. Yes. Even scarier because of the weaponry and the technology now.
2: Yes, it's a, a sort of te- techno-fascism that far outstrips anything that the Nazis could have done. You know, a military machine that makes their war mock look like a rubber band affair, a genocidal capability that's just unparalleled in human history, and a willingness on the part of this system to be genocidal all over the world. You know, it may not consist of rounding people up and putting them into gas chambers. It May consist of dropping the gas out of the air onto them. You know, there may be new technologies and methods of death. And Galen argued for those. Reinhard Galen argued in his last notebooks that the Holocaust, as they were carrying it out, was too sloppy, too messy, and that it would be better to to look into possibility, perhaps, of creating natural disasters. And at at a world weapons conference in Stockholm in 1976, I got records of plans to put fluids down into faults existing faults to see if they could cause them to collapse and create earthquakes of methods they could use in cloud seeding and other techniques to create hurricanes and tornadoes so all these things are looked at and uh, development of ethnically specific chemical biological weapons that would kill one race or not another that was studied development of a human organism or an or an organism that would break down that would be refractory to the human immune system. Funding for research on that was sought for 10 years from 1970 to 1980, and then 80 is when AIDS breaks out, which does specifically that. This is a time when we're at the crossroads in human history. We're either going to go down this nightmare path of 60 years of war and social repression, no jobs, low income, ruined economy, no Social Security, no social needs or benefits being met, tremendously bloated military intelligence budget, a militarized society, a continued and expanded intelligence capability, including reclassifying what little bit of our history has been released and hiding it from us, and an end to most of our basic democratic rights that we assume, including the right to separate police and military function under Posse Comitatus Act or the bright line of the Constitution, that knew that when you put those two functions together in a society, you've got a lot of trouble, whether you're a colony or whether you're in Nazi Germany when doing that is called the Gestapo. And these basic things are being undermined without public discussion or debate or decision-making capability. We're just being pushed along fear after fear. You're more in danger by the people who want you to give up your liberty and your democratic rights than you are in danger from the people who are going to bomb a building. And as you say, the killings continued, and certainly Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed for their opposition to the war in Vietnam, for wanting to restore justice uh, to push the racial integration and uh, racial justice agendas, and for dealing with the poor and having a social conscience. And similarly, they were taken out of the way in the late 1960s, five years after John Kennedy was shot. And Malcolm X was killed in 1965, shortly after Kennedy's death, when he began to reach out to and make working relations with Martin Luther King, which frightened them because they wanted to use them to divide the black community. They were terrified of what King would do when the Poor People's March came to D.C., and that there would be enough people to shut the city down. They don't know how to handle social dissent and social movements, and so they handle it as they would their own affairs and try to shoot the leadership. And it demoralizes people, it kills hope, but it doesn't last forever, and people rise again to ask these questions and continue these investigations. And the Coalition on Political Assassinations is working now to get a bill in. Cynthia McKinney introduced a version at the end of the last Congress. We're going to try to get other Congressional Black Caucus members to put in a new version for the coming legislative session, get a passed to release all the government files on Dr. King's life and his assassination. And that will also release COINTELPRO profiles. We want to do a mock grand jury on the John F. Kennedy assassination and bring forward witnesses who could testify to the truth in the situation that are still living and show people what a grand jury would look like if one was convened and to push for an actual grand jury. We'd also eventually, what we want to do, our our overall goal, besides getting the rest of the files loose on this history, getting some legal action on this history, is to open here in Washington, D.C., where young people come all the time and could see it, and the new generations could see it, uh, and preserve the research in a museum and research center dedicated to the truth about the political assassinations of the nineteen
1: yeah, yeah. Exactly sixties.
0: John Judge is the coordinator of the Coalition on Political Assassinations, an independent researcher, author, and lecturer. He is author of Judge for Yourself, a compendium of research articles and lectures about covert operations, hidden history, and assassinations. His writings, as well as others mentioned in this broadcast, are available from the Last Hurrah bookshop by calling 570-321-1150 or link to the bookshop's website at www.gunsandbutter.net. You can write to John Judge at copa.com. At tidalwave.net. That's C O P A at tidalwave.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510 848 6767, extension 628, or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all you understand what i'm saying this is a call for all you sleeping souls wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper. Trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?